That was a new song, and it was wonderful. I think worthy of repeating many times here at Sovereign Grace and saying, Jesus, thank you for the cross. I was just reading those lyrics as we were singing through them, and man, his merits laid to our account by his sacrifice in our place, receiving the penalty we deserve so that we would receive his righteousness and his love forever. All sins washed away, his work complete. What a glorious Savior we have. We're going to read about our Savior this morning from Mark's Gospel. We're going to read about his opponents. And it's important, I think, to do that and to review some things this morning about the opponents of Christ and the condition of their hearts. This is going to be an informative and, I think, important background message to where we're going to go next month in Mark 7. So if you would, open your Bibles there with me to begin with this morning. Mark chapter 7, and I want to read in your hearing verses 1 to 13. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, pretenders, fakes? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God, in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God as an offering, as a vow, then you no longer... Permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to a text like this, and we see the immediate conflict taking place, and there's much happening behind the scenes that many of us may not know about. Yet we see something glorious in this text and in the text we will be covering today. We see the victorious power and authority of our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ, even in the face of confrontation and conflict here. As he is dealing with the enemies of the cross, the enemies of the gospel. God, I know as we read this that we can see the the wickedness in these hypocrites, these Pharisees and scribes, but Lord, help us to examine our own hearts and examine if we have anything hidden in us that is 
somewhat resembling the legalistic mindsets of these men. And we pray that you would remove it far from us, that we would look solely to the work of Christ as our source of righteousness and hope for true worship. And I pray you do all this today in Jesus' name. Amen. So when you come to Mark 7, here's what you find out. The Pharisees and the scribes are back. They're back and their opposition to Jesus is now intensifying. But since it's been a while since we've heard from the Pharisees and scribes in Mark, I think it's going to be helpful for us to go back and be reminded about why this conflict is now showing up there in Mark 7 between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. And and why is it obviously cranked up to be such an intense confrontation at this moment? And we can we can get a glimpse into why that's the case by going back in Mark's gospel, back to another time in which the Pharisees and the scribes show up. Go back to Mark 3 to see that. Because in, in Mark 3, we learn much. We learn much about the heart of the Pharisees and the scribes here. We're going to see in, in Mark 3, 1 to 11, and then verse 22, is we're going to see the, the heart's posture of Christ's opponents here. So I want to go there with you today, and I think it's going to be helpful for us to do that in order for us to understand the heart of the opponents of Christ there in Mark 7 before I come to that passage to preach through it. So let's look at Mark 3, beginning in verse 1, down to 11, then we'll jump down to verse 22. Again, Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they, that is the Pharisees, Watch Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out. And his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him, how to murder him. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And then verse 22, enter the scribes. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub and by the prince of demons. He casts out the demons by the prince of demons. That's what they're saying here. So now we're beginning to see the heart of Christ's opponents in Mark 7 being laid bare. This is an important background of what we're going to go to because what we're going to see in Mark here in this section of Scripture, in Mark 3 verses 1 to 6 is, We're going to see this. We're going to see the hearts of the Pharisees and what identifies them, what they were marked out by. And that has not changed when you come to Mark 7. So keep that in mind. It's actually gotten worse. Okay? And here's what the 
Pharisees and scribes, this is what their hearts were marked out by. They're marked out by, number one, calloused emotions in verses 1 to 2a. They're marked out by wicked intentions in verse 2b. And they're marked out by hate-filled reactions in verses 4 to 6. Now, here's what you need to keep in mind. When you, when you read this narrative in Mark, and then you read it in the other places you find it in the Gospels, Matthew 12 and Luke 6, you need to understand that the order of what's happening is slightly different in each of these narratives. But there is a flow to it, okay? And, and since you probably haven't read this in a while, you know, as far as these other sections, I'm going to just try to summarize what's really kind of happening all in order so that you can feel what's happening at the time that this confrontation takes place in Mark 3. Because I think it's foundational to what's going to take place in Mark 7. So, so this narrative here in chapter 3, this narrative begins with Jesus entering a synagogue on the Sabbath. And he's coming there to teach them, right? He's coming there to teach them. And, and we find when he gets there, there's a man with a withered hand, a hand that's useless, can't be functional. In other words, the man's probably not able to even make a, a livelihood for himself or anyone else. He is destitute, probably. He has a withered hand. Now, now understand, a withered hand is not a life-threatening condition, okay? And that's important to the context of what's going to be said here. There with this withered man are some other people, right? Jesus' opponents, the Pharisees and the scribes, they're there. And these men are there, the Pharisees in particular, are there to test Jesus so they can figure out a way to charge him with wrongdoing, with breaking their traditions, their laws. Now, Jesus already knows their intentions. He is omniscient. He knows all that men think in their hearts. And he's going to eventually reveal their intentions. And they themselves reveal their intentions eventually, too, even in the way they ask the question that they ask of him. They ask him, is it right, we see this in the other narratives, is it right or lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And maybe they were pointing at this withered hand of this man saying, look, is it right to heal this man on the Sabbath? Is it lawful to do that? And what I love in this is when you read these three together, these three narratives together, you see that that at that moment, Jesus looks at the man and says, come here, come here. You know something's about to happen in this synagogue at that moment. It's tense. So he tells him to come here. Then he turns around and turns their question on themselves, right? But he uses the law of God to do that. And he does it for a specific purpose. He does it to expose the intentions of their hearts in the original question they asked him. So he asks them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? They're in a pickle. They know what the intention of the, the Sabbath is. It's for man's good. They can't say, well, no, you've you got to do harm. No, they won't say that. They're stuck. This is the divine wisdom of Jesus. He puts them in their place. He's going to expose their hearts in this question. When he asks the question, it's very important that you see they have no words to speak. The Pharisees are silent. And when their silence comes to a point of great intensity, I think, it tells us in Mark here that Jesus looked at them with anger, grieved, Grieved that they had no response because there should have been a response. There should have been a reaction by these men that should have been God exalting and for their good. But there wasn't. He's grieved over the hardness of their hearts. And so he goes on and we see this in the other accounts. He illustrates something to them that they were very well aware of. He illustrates that they know about the value of a man's life over a sheep. 
A sheep that would get stuck on the Sabbath and how they would rescue it. He knows they know this. He puts them in this position to be really self-convicted by this question, this parable, if you will. But then he does something amazing. He doesn't just give them the illustration of the, the man's life being worthy over the sheep's life to be saved on the Sabbath. He illustrates what he means by looking at the man with the withered hand and says, stretch out your hand. And when he does, that man's hand is fully restored. And listen, it's fully restored before all of them. The Pharisees couldn't deny it. They saw the miracle take place before their eyes, along with everyone in that synagogue. And how do they react? They're outraged. Why? Well, because Jesus, in this public this public spectacle of grace and mercy and compassion toward this man is it's, he's giving a public display of his sovereign authority and his great divine compassion. And what's that do? It exposes them. It exposes the evil intentions of their heart. It exposes their hypocritical hard heartedness. And he does so in front of everyone in the synagogue. He decimated them. How do they respond to that? To this great healing work of Christ himself, God in the flesh, sovereignly and compassionately healing this broken and needy man. How do they respond? Well, after the silence is broken, they storm out. They storm out of the synagogue. And what do they do? They run to their own enemies, the Herodians who supported Herod and the Romans. And they they run to them so they can combine forces with them to conspire on how to put Jesus to death. Why? Because he was a threat. He is a threat to all man-made religious systems. He was a threat to their man-made kingdoms, their, their power that they had built up for themselves. He was a threat to their self-righteousness, their hypocrisy. He exposed them in ways that no other man could, for he is the Son of God. He knows their hearts. So that, that little summary is where we're going to Focus our mind as we look at the text and go through it, because I think that little summary and this actual narrative here in Mark three, it really shows us what lies at the heart of the conflict that we're going to find in Mark seven. So let's go there again to Mark three, verses one and two, and examine the heart of Jesus's opponents a little more carefully here. First off, here's what we see. We see that men with hard, withered hearts produce calloused emotions toward those who are broken and needy. These men did not see the neediness and the weakness and the infirmity of the man as something they wanted to alleviate. They saw him as a theological trick question to trip up Jesus. And they would use him for that. That's all they're interested in. They had calloused hearts, calloused emotions. Verse 1 says, again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And the Pharisees watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. Now, the first thing we, we need to notice here is that the Pharisees were esteeming something above this man. And it wasn't God's law, not the Sabbath. They were esteeming their man-made traditions above this hurting individual. But not Jesus, not Jesus. He esteemed God's heart for the hurting above their traditions. And those traditions came from a book that is still being used today in many Orthodox Jewish synagogues, the Mishnah. The Mishnah. 
Those traditions came from their oral teachings that were passed down, handed down from rabbi to rabbi, and written down in the Mishnah, which serves sort of like a commentary, right, that would be quoted by the rabbis and the scribes, the Pharisees. And it actually became something at Jesus' time here, something that actually held greater authority than the Word of God itself. It's basically like taking um, the Geneva Bible with the study notes in it, or John Calvin's commentary, and then trying to insert that as the interpretive, holy, inspired gift from God to us. And we actually learn those things above God's word, and eventually those things begin to take the place of God's word. Okay? So Jesus esteemed the man, his need, above anything these men had created in their own traditional forms of religion. Listen, books like the Mishnah are damnable in the way they're used. The Mormons do this. Jehovah's Witness do this. All cults do this. And if we're not careful, we can do this. Everybody in here has got a John MacArthur study Bible. The notes are not inspired, okay? But when you begin to criticize and debate about what that note is saying, and you actually begin to judge others more harshly based on your interpretation of this, rather than the consistent evidential flow of the text, you can be as guilty as this as they are. So we see Jesus esteeming God's heart for the hurting above that, man's traditions. I mean, just think about this. These men, can you, could you just ima- imagine someone coming in here, and then he's, he's a hurting individual. It's an obvious struggle physically that he's going through, and you look right past him and figure out some way to trip up the preacher about him. You use him for your own evil desires, They do that here. They look right past this broken man's problem. And why do they do that? They do that because they have self-righteous, hard hearts. But that's not Jesus, not our Savior. He is that man and our tender creator. Just think about this. Jesus is the one who knit this man together in his mother's womb. And now at this moment in time, he's going to display his creative power all over again in this man. He's going to reveal in his healing of this man his own sovereign and good nature as God in the flesh by his tender compassion and his actions here in bringing this man restoration. He does that because he knows these men, these men want to try to find some fault in him. He's going to say, the only thing you can find faulting in me is I am God in the flesh and I am exhibiting that before you. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Men find their rest in me. They're healing in me. I mean, Jesus knew, obviously, even in their trickery here, he knew that the law of God did not restrict the healing of the sick on the Sabbath. He knew that. You know why he knew that? He ordained the Sabbath to be a a gift to man to restore us, spiritually and physically. But that's not the way the Pharisees had interpreted it from the Mishnah, from their oral teachings, their traditions. The Pharisees had interpreted the law to say that medical help could not be given on the Sabbath unless... The illness was life-threatening, and they did not believe a withered hand qualified for that. So they thought they had Jesus here in a corner. They thought that if he heals this man, he's going to prove himself to be a Sabbath-breaker according to our perspective, and we'll have reason to get the, the people of Israel to put him to death according to our traditions. You begin to see the heart of these men, these callous, hard-hearted men, These men only saw this broken man as a means to their evil ends. 
Saints, that's what legalism does. That's what legalism does. And that's the sign of a hard heart right here. Now, the Pharisees are going to eventually display their heart, whether they want to or not. Jesus knows their heart. Their reactions are going to display their heart. Their intentions will be known by Jesus. He knows what's in their heart. He's going to expose this evil in them. He's going to expose it because he is not only the sovereign, gentle, and tender creator, he's also man's righteous judge. He judges the heart of these men in this text. Look at verse 2. In verse 2, Jesus, the judge of man's thoughts, reveals that hard, withered hearts can only produce wicked intentions. Think about their wicked intentions. What are they doing? They're, they're longing to slander Jesus to elevate themselves. Again, another symptom of legalism. Verse 2 reveals that Jesus, though, omnisciently knew what was going on in their hearts. He knew the intentions of their hearts. And he knows the intentions of ours as well. But in verse 2 makes it clear they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. That was their motive. That was their desire. That was their intention of their heart in the way in which they formed the question. Now, even though Jesus knew this, it didn't dissuade him. It didn't stop him. It didn't slow him down. No, it actually propelled the situation. Knowing their wicked intentions only leads to Jesus publicly confirming his own claim to be the Lord of the Sabbath and the giver of rest to man. And so Jesus confirms this. He confirms his divine authority and his omniscience here by, by calling the man forward in front of everyone so they could see what's about to take place. And he also did it to show he knows the hearts of the men who are sitting among him. He's going to expose their evil intentions. The hearts of the Pharisees are going to be put to open shame in verse 3. Verse 3, he says, And he says to the man with the withered hand, Come here. (laughs) And then then after, after this happens, after he says this, the man obviously obeys the Lord of glory. He gets up, he comes forward to Jesus, and then Jesus asks his opponents a heart exposing question in verse 4. And, and here's the question. But let me say this first. This question is given for a divine purpose. It, it's, it's brought to them with this purpose. It is to be a means of divine correction and a righteous judgment against them if they do not repent. And what it does is it reveals the hardness of their hearts as a result. It, it reveals that, that they are responding to divine compassion and correction here in a hate-filled reaction. That's how they respond to Jesus, to his divine compassion, his correction. They respond with hate-filled reactions. And, And you see the question there in 4a. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? This is an example of the divine wisdom of God the Son here. He knew that the Pharisees knew the purpose of God's gift of the Sabbath. It was to benefit man. It wasn't to harm man. It was to be a day of healing, rest for the body and soul. He knew they knew that, but he frames the question in such a way they can't get out of this. The only thing they can do is repent. They can have no other answer. No other reaction is allowable here. And even though they knew that, even though the Pharisees knew the intent of God's gift of the Sabbath to his people, 
They, they had all the knowledge they needed to know this. Here's what we see, though. Because of the sin in their heart, because of the legalistic self-righteousness that dwelt within them, the knowledge they had, even of God's law, was twisted by the hypocrisy and evil of their withered hearts. What's worse here, a withered hand or a withered heart? Legalism leads to a withered heart, a calloused heart, a wicked heart, a hate-filled heart. That's what we see taking place here. Are we getting a glimpse into the enemies of Christ that come to him in Mark 7 here? Again, their hearts haven't changed by by the time we come to Mark 7. They've only gotten harder, more calloused, more hate-filled. I mean, just think about this whole scene, right? This whole thing is taking place here. Here we got the Pharisees, the, the religious establishment of the day. These are men who everyone looked up to and honored, though sometimes they didn't like or agree with, but they were intimidated by these men. They had such knowledge and wisdom, they thought. And here we have these Pharisees trying to find a way to accuse Jesus, the Holy One, the Lord of glory in the flesh, trying to accuse him of Sabbath breaking for doing good. Because he's going to restore this man's life and health. Do you see the hate in this? They care so much about themselves and so little about Jesus and this man that they'll do whatever it takes to manipulate God's word and their traditions to find a way to convict him of some wrongdoing to elevate themselves and protect their position. That is the danger of legalism. It's still alive today. Read Galatians. It's still alive. Read Colossians. In verse 4, Jesus takes these men off guard. They're completely caught off guard. His wisdom blows their mind. They have no way to con- con- come back to that with some sort of answer that would be justifiable in, in their sight to praise them and exalt them and defame Jesus. So they don't know what to do because what's he, what he's doing here is in his divine wisdom, he is shining the light of God's word on their darkened hearts and exposing them. He's revealing what they thought they had hidden from everybody else. You hypocrites, you pretenders, I know your heart. Listen, saints, you come to church, you sing songs, and you give all the lip service to God in this time together. But if your heart is far from God because you are not yet repentant of your sins and looking to Christ alone for salvation, Jesus knows it. And he will expose it. You hope he exposes it savingly. But if he doesn't, it'll be a time at judgment in his presence where you will bow the knee before him. What he's doing here could be a blessing to these men, but they would not have it. What he's doing here is both an act of divine correction and compassion toward the Pharisees among him. But how do they react to it? How do they react to Jesus's correction and compassion toward this man here? Verse 4b, they were silent. It's unbelievable. That is unbelievable. God in the flesh calls you out. What are you going to do? Folks, when you hear the word of God preached, that's exactly what he's doing. Are you still silent and in your sins? Are you crying out for repentance? That's what these men should have been doing. But they didn't because they let their legalism, their hard-hearted, self-righteous religious activities keep them from submitting to the Lord of glory. His question here to them should have cultivated repentance in them. 
But instead, what's it do? It reveals the truth about them. It reveals the truth about the withered condition of their hearts. They did not repent. They were silent. If you can hear the word of God preached to you faithfully, and you remain silent in your response to God, that's a sign of a hardened heart. Listen, God saves hypocrites. The Apostle Paul testifies to that, and so do we. The longer you harden your heart against the truth of God, the worse the consequences will be when it comes to responding to God as you ought. It will be harder. You have heaped up to yourselves judgment, not compassion. Jesus is judging them. Verse 5 says it. When they were silent, it angered him. You don't read that a lot in the, the Gospels. I just preached a sermon about his tender compassion, right? We have God here, the righteous one, in the flesh, Jesus. And when men do not respond to him, there is anger. How dare you not speak at this moment? I'm commanding you here in this correction. And it grieved him. It grieved the judge of man's heart here. Verse 5a says, he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. There was no reply from the hard hearts of the Pharisees. There was only deafening silence in the synagogue. The atmosphere there in that synagogue must have been intense. Everyone sitting at the edge of their seat, wondering what's going to happen. And they're silent. But in verse 5b, we hear the silence broken. It's broken by our good and sovereign king's command and mercy. Verse 5b says that he said to the man, look, these people aren't going to respond He says to the man, stretch out your hand. He gives a divine command, a compassionate one. Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. Glory to God. Rejoice. Don't remain silent. But that's what happens even here. Here we see that Jesus' sovereign command completely restored this man's withered hand. But at the same time, it completely revealed the Pharisees' withered hearts. Pharisees had every reason at that moment to rejoice over Jesus' compassion, authority, and grace. But they love their self-righteousness. They love their traditions. They love their praises in the marketplace more than they love Jesus, more than they love God. They didn't repent. Instead, what they do, they revealed the true condition of their heart by their reaction in verse 6. We see the reaction there. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Wow. What? Where does that? I mean, you don't see that coming. What you're hoping for is when he heals the man, they're like, oh, my, this is God in the flesh. Look at the mercy of God toward us even at this moment. He didn't strike us dead for our blasphemous accusations. What do they do? They go out immediately, it says. They held a council with their own enemies on how to meet together and destroy Jesus. That is the hatred of legalism exposed. That's what's happening here. Their their hate-filled actions here spoke volumes about what was really going on inside of their hearts. The Pharisees, as we can see from this, had the heart of their father 
the devil. And the reaction testified to it. It reflected Satan's evil and destructive nature. Now the same was true of the scribes. Go back down to verse 22. I mean, after hearing about Jesus delivering souls from the bondage of Satan, of demons, right? What do they do? How do they react to the good news of Jesus setting the captive free? They reacted to his testimony by claiming that Jesus himself was demon-possessed. Even though in reality they knew, they absolutely knew, I promise you they knew and had memorized the prophecy of Isaiah 61.1. And Jesus was fulfilling that in their very presence. They knew that it says this in Isaiah 61.1. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Notice to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prison to those who are bound. Saints, they knew this. They suppressed the truth in self-righteousness because their hard hearts did not want to believe this. They didn't want to believe this prophecy was about Jesus. Even though by the time you come to Mark 7, you know there are ample testimonies to his power to set the, the bondage, the people in bondage free. You know that those go on from chapter 3 all the way to chapter 6. That's his constant testimony. He is setting captives free constantly throughout this region. They know this. They've been hearing about this. But their hearts are still unchanged by the time we come to Mark 7 and they show up again. What do they do when they show up there in Mark 7? They're there to test Oppose, accuse, and discredit Jesus with the hope of finding fault and justification for putting him to death. Why? Here's why. He was eroding the foundation of their little kingdom. He was exposing the hypocrisy in their hearts. He was exposing their vain worship, it says in Mark 7. And how was he doing that? By pointing the people back to the word of God as the final authority in order to help them find out where true righteousness and true worship flows from. Pharisees and Sadducees and much of Israel had lost sight of that. They thought that true worship flowed from keeping the man-made traditions that were handed down to them from Jerusalem. They thought that's the source of true worship. It's there. It's found there in these traditions. Well, in one sense, they were right about Jerusalem. That's where true worship would eventually flow from. But it would flow from the cross of the Son of God, Jesus. It would flow from there because there he completed the work for us. And at the cross is the only place we can go as sinners to find what, what he has offered us, what he commands of us. From the cross, this is the only place sinners can find true wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Our only hope as defiled sinners and hard-hearted hypocrites is found in the work of Christ that he fulfilled at the cross. There at the cross, he fulfilled the demands of God's law in our place. He lived the righteous life we could never live, nor would we want to apart from his grace. He alone there at the cross took our place and paid the penalty for our sins to impute his righteousness to us. So we would have not only forgiven sins, but a righteous standing before a holy God who demands obedience and perfection. We have it in Christ given to us at the cross. 
It didn't stop there. He rose up from the grave after he died in our place. And he rose up to guarantee our justification that we have a right standing with God for eternity. And then further, now he's alive ever still, right? And he's the one who is interceding for us as our sympathetic high priest. And even though the heart of these self-righteous Pharisees sought to put him to death, it is this Jesus that is the only hope of eternal life for sinners and righteousness before God. He wins. These opponents don't have a chance. You know why? Because he is the mediator of the new covenant that he sealed with his own blood. And his blood, saints, listen to this, his blood will do what the religious traditions of man could never do. It will cleanse our hearts. Washings of water will not. Baptism will not. His blood will cause us to joyfully walk in obedience to God's law, just as he promised he would accomplish in us. According to one last passage I want to look at from Ezekiel chapter 36. Verses 25 to 27. His blood will do what the religious traditions of man could never do. And we see that happening here in Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. I love the I will statements throughout this section. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and notice and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. Saints, true worship doesn't come from following rigid man-made traditions. It comes from the cross of Jesus Christ. And his imputed righteousness granted to us that cultivates joy in our hearts as people who have been born again. And a desire to honor our Savior through obedience to his word. Because he has put his spirit within us. And now we want to walk after his ways and honor him. We're no longer bound by legalistic rules. But the opponents of Christ will always be bound. Either by the rules of man or by God himself in the future. But praise the Lord, we have Jesus who sets the captives free. So that prepares us for Mark 7 next time. You know who the opponents are, and you see the condition of their hearts. And we will get to see the glorious wisdom of our Christ when we come to Mark 7 next time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you again, thanking you for your grace, thanking for you you for your truth, thanking you for Jesus, our Savior, our source of righteousness and hope. We pray that as we rejoice in the truth and we are prepared to stand for the truth, that when uh, opposition comes, we would be prepared to honor you by going to your word, to refute them, to exalt you in it and expose them as a result so that you would be glorified and others would be protected pray that you would help us as we go to Mark 7 next time to, to see what's going on in this conflict that takes place there at the beginning of that chapter all the way through. We pray that you would be honored today as we praise you for what you have done in Christ. I pray that in his name. Amen.